Hello everyone, my name is Don Lemon and this is CNN and today we'll be talking about the second round of debates. <laughs> okay, I'm just trolling you guys, but uh, yeah, I love doing that. Uh, shout out to Don Lemon too. Uh, matter of fact, shout out to CNN uh, for holding probably one of the worst debates um, I ever saw <laughs> as a eligible voter <laughs> but uh, uh, uh anyway before we even get into how terrible a job cnn did with their moderators and their talk talking points or their uh choices uh, for particular topics um all i want to say is is that like when it comes to policy the first night really had way more policy conversations because the first night had Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And I really think that's where uh, I'm going to start off today is with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Uh, because, to be honest, they kind of showed why the Democratic Party is moving towards a more social democratic party rather than a moderate centrist one. I mean, Bernie and Elizabeth were taking attacks from basically everybody. Not only the centrist, but like... The centrists who try to be fake, fake uh, progressives, you know, and so, but um, we're about to go ahead and get into it and get this episode started. Let's go. Okay, my bad. So instead of doing Warren and Bernie first, I'm going to actually... Uh, do uh, some underdog talk about some underdogs that are on the ticket right now because I do not believe that they're gonna make it to the next debate. Um, I, I know Pete Buttigieg is gonna make it to the next debate, um, but um, the rest of these cats aren't. So I kind of wanted to talk about them because uh, they kind of had you know the most uh, the biggest night. Uh, so we're gonna see you know what well, I'm gonna talk about what I like about them. Um, first, Jay Inslee, I really like. That every time Jay, Jay Inslee, you know, spoke, he spoke about climate change and he made sure to speak about climate change, you know, at both debates. Um, I do feel like our climate change is an existential threat. Yes. Um, do I feel like climate change is our only problem? No. But I feel like it's an overarching problem that affects a lot of other problems. Um, when, when we're talking about um, climate change, we have to remember two main things we have to remember labor and we have to remember environmental justice um one of the best one of my one of the best things he said was uh just kind of pitting the backs off of the green new deal uh in bernie and warren is basically saying that hey we need to make it easier for people to transition uh people that are in the fossil fuel industry people who work at petrochemical plants we have to make it easier for them to have an adequate transition to jobs that promote cleaner energy and so you know the climate change like argument becomes kind of divisive but it, be, it it needs to start becoming divisive in the right places um i feel like you know division needs to be okay what's going to be the leading in renewable energy sun solar solar power wind power hydropower what, what's going to be the leading power like, like I, I love the fishing. Like, I love conversations like that because it's actually 
targeting what we need to start doing. And so, you know, um, I also believe in a carbon tax. So I really like, you know, the stuff that he was saying. Um, but unfortunately, I feel like, you know, we can't just focus on climate change. Uh, definitely, we want to win president. But I feel like this is a great issues uh, candidate. Um, Julian Castro, um, Julian Castro, he, he did good again tonight. Um, he really defended his stance at the border and, and uh, immigration. Uh, but again, I don't feel like he's going to, you know, make the qualifications to uh, make it to the third debates, which I feel are absolute bullshit. You know, uh, I feel like, you know, you know, the qualifications just kind of show that, like, as long as you have money in politics, you'll be able to make the debate stage because the qualifications are complete trash. But um, what I really liked about Julian Castro is that, you know, he, he didn't let the pressure of, you know, everybody saying, oh, this is a bad idea and, and, and you know, he changed his idea. No, I, I, I love that. Um, basically, what Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren both want to do, which they both got flack for, is basically decriminalize illegal border crossings. And I know people are like saying, oh, what you can't decriminalize illegal border crossings. It's still illegal. You have to, you know, you, you have to understand our system. It, it, it's unsafe to just let people come in here and stay in here without any vetting process. Nobody is saying that. Nobody is saying that. Like, you know how, like, you know, security clearance works at, at jobs or at buildings? Like, how you have to just go past the metal detector and, like, you still have a security system in place? Yeah, that's exactly what this is. Even on, and, and, and not only this is exactly what this is, but it's, it's secure. It's actual security. You know, when somebody comes in, instead of taking them away from their parents and locking them up in cages, let's just make it a civil offense to where none of that shit happens. And, like, I was actually thinking, like, before here, it's just the over, I, I want to do, I want to start doing a project kind of debunking two things and two things and what we perceive. And, and that's the Overton window and uh, the concept of historical context. But our Overton windows are just so mismatched and fucked up and it doesn't make any sense. But because like because at the end of the day, when it when it's Republicans versus Democrats, when it comes to border issues, Republicans want to just put up a wall and say, let it be done. They don't want to do nothing about the ICE detention detention centers. They just want to put up a wall. So the very definition of progression on and which is solving problems tells us that the Republicans are automatically not in the conversation. All right. So we want, like, because between the Democrats and Republicans, Democrats don't want kids to be in cages. Democrats don't want kids to be stripped from their families. So how do we accomplish this? It gets icky when we start talking about Democrats. So Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro literally say, okay, as Democrats, we don't like this. Let's fix this. Let's decriminalize illegal boarding crosses at the border. And then all the moderate Dems go like, whoa, bro. No, that is way too much. What are you doing? And then it's like, OK, so what, what's your solution to stop kids from getting locked up in cages? Nothing. Zilch. What you what you hear? You hear crickets. You hear crickets. 
You say, this is a bad thing, and I wish we could do something about this. There is something we could do about this. Like Julian said, change that 13.25 title, not making this a, a criminal activity, and at the end of the day, not only we, 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 we focus on the path to citizenship so we can have stronger accountability for these people, but we solve the direct problem that the Democrat, Democrat Party complains about. But the, see, the thing is, if a moderate centrist is representing the Democratic Party and not a real progressive, then it just makes it seem like Democrats are tribalists and they don't really care about immigration. No, they don't care about immigration at all. They just care about getting Hispanic votes from Republicans. That's why it's important if you're going to say something, no, not, not, if you're going to say something, have the actual cojones to fix it. A lot of people can say it's bad to lock people up in cages. It's bad that we have an overcrowded ICE detention centers. It's bad that, you know, women are getting separated from their ch- children. But as soon as we're in a democratic progressive space... You tell me that that is too much. Bill de Blasio is absolute trash. And um, I really like the, my best part of Bill de Blasio is uh, the Black Lives Matter um, activist coming in and, ch- you know, you know, lock up that officer that killed Eric Garner. Again, and you guys know how I roll. You know, I'm not even going to say the officer's name on my show, uh, but I love him because it shows Bill DeBazio is a fraud, bro. And the thing is, I would rather a John Hickenlooper, a Jay Inslee, shit, I would rather a John Delaney over a Bill DeBazio. Don't fake your, don't fake it till you make it. No. And it's just so funny because, like, people like you specifically, it's like, we see you. We see your record. We see it. We, we, New York, like you said, New York is the biggest city in the United States, bruh. So we see it. We see you're not a progressive. So, yeah, I'm going to be glad to see him go. Um, Pete Buttigieg, for some reason, man. He does this fake Obama thing so well. It's fake JFK. Um, and I hate it. But he did a he did a really good job. And I hate it. Like he does such a good job, I'm really upset. And he keeps just doing this such a good job. Like, he literally said that and this and I and I and I've said this before, but he's literally said he literally sat up there and said we we need to stop focusing on appealing to Republicans. Because the thing is, what history has showed us, if we adopt a triangulation a triangle approach to where we focus focus on triangulation and a centrist approach, then we're gonna be called socialists. If we but if we adopt a left ideologist, you know, type of, you know, approach, then we're gonna still be called socialists. So let's just do what the American people want. And that's left ideology. So I'm like, well, I mean, Pete, you're not really... 
I mean, I seen your FEC report, Pete. You're not the most progressive. But it's like, man, if you good at it, you good at it. Everybody got strengths. Some people's strengths are being the next JFK. Some people's strengths are being the next Obama. And some people's strengths, like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, are actual policy. Whatever moves your stick. You guys know what we go for here. We go for actual logic. But yeah, uh, Pete Buttigieg, he's doing so great at doing a fake JFK thing. Congratulations. Um, Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang. He, he, particularly about Andrew Yang, he did qualify for the last debate. No, the, the, the fourth debate. But then they wanted to, because how you qualify for the third debates, you basically have to be um, an average 2% um, in the poll, in, in, four, um, internet, in four national polls. So you have to be polling at at least 2% in four national polls, which is stupid. Like, that is crazy hard to accomplish. But, um, and then I, I think after that you need 135 or 130 unique donors. Um, so he already had the donors, um, but the, or did he? I think he either, I think he already had the donors, but even if he didn't, I knew he had the four polls already. He was polling at 2% above, uh, 2% or above on more than four than, uh, four national polls. What happened is they stripped one of the national polls out of nowhere. And so... Now he's not qualified, but um, most likely I see him getting a little bump from uh, the debates. So hopefully he, he can get in there. I, I really want to see Yang in there, even though I do not agree with the execution of Yang's promises. I do not. Anybody out there who watches this who's like a UBI supporter, like not not Andrew Yang's UBI. I'm just talking about UBI in general, you know, even if it's Milton, Milton Freeman, Charles Murphy, anything like you under like just understand UBI arguments. Um, I, I, I kind of want to have you on the episode because I kind of want to talk to people about, you know, universal based income and its intricacies. But I do support universal based income. I just don't support the shit Andrew Yang is talking about. I support actually a lot of things Andrew Yang like like. I support the theory behind what Andrew Yang does, but his, you know his praxis for how he's going to execute it makes no sense to me. But I I feel like it's a it's a progressive enough conversation that he should be you know in the room with people like Bernie, you know, or people like Elizabeth. You know, he should be in there for the long run. Definitely, if Pete Buttigieg is going to be in this bitch, like man, at least give me Andrew Yang. Uh, Yang Gang, but, um, yeah, Beto work did cool, he did, everybody was like, man, he did way better this time, he did okay, like, he just had that one moment with Steve Bullock, um, where, you know, he just told him that an ACA system, you know, has proven to still keep 30 millions of people off of their, um, or, or millions of people off of their, um, without healthcare insurance, and so, yeah, he had a really, really good moment with Steve Bullock, but it wasn't a good moment, uh, because, I mean, it was kind of like he, in that moment, he was kind of like trying to be the in the middle guy again. Like Bethel has that bad, like, all right, I'm gonna be the guy who just hears people out. You know, there's some people who offer ACA, but that's not going to be enough. And there's people who offer Medicare for all, but that's going to be too much. What we got to do is 
we have to meet in the middle. Centrism. Like, like what, what, and like, Beto is like, man, like, that guy was, and I just remember, he used to lean way more left during the Senate campaign when I worked for him. Like, and I, I don't know what happened. Like, yeah, I worked for Beto, but I worked for a Senate campaign where he was for single-payer health care. <laughs> you know, uh, but to each his own. But um, what, 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 we, what we have to talk about next is the ultimate showdown, Tulsi versus Kamala Harris. So let's finally get to it. Tulsi Gabbard versus Kamala Harris. And man, one thing I just really have to say about this debate is that, man, Kamala did not have a dog in the fight. Like, she didn't. She was just not prepared for that. And the thing is, I don't think anybody else was prepared for it either. But, you know, this kind of brings up uh, this particular and how this, you know, uh, argument came about. Because basically, really, what, you know, started the whole showdown was, you know, um, Kamala Harris talking about Joe Biden's past. uh, uh, Specifically, I think she was talking about his 94 crime bill that he drafted, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> unilateral consensus that that is absolutely terrible. That was an absolute terrible um, bill. Um, it dis- disproportionately affected African-Americans at a high rate. And, you know, Democrats signed it. And so, you know, she was just basically using that to piggyback, you know, and make a case for, you know, criminal justice reform and how we have to undo the things that, you know, basically people in Joe's generation did. And so... That's when Tosi just came left field, literally left field, because it was like, you know, Tosi leans more left than Kamala too, so <laughs> it, it was like literally left field because out of nowhere you just see, you know, after Kamala's done, you, you just hear Tosi say, "Hey, well, you know, let's stay on criminal justice reform. You know, let's talk about how when you were Attorney General um, of California, you had a job." And you use that job to lock up people for minor drug crimes. And so what what, what I do want to get just out the way first is that, no, I mean, at the end of the day, Kamala Harris, as prosecutor, she does not have uh, legislative powers. So um, but she can impact a certain move. She, she could have impacted certain moves when it came to uh, people getting clemency are, you know, cases being tried, really cases being tried, you know, that, you know, she did have enough power to, you know, basically try those cases that, you know, she didn't. And so when we, when we say it, when we think about this, did Tulsi Gabbard frame it in a way like as Kamala Harris did all of that in a, in a, in a, in a, in an objective truth, yes, absolutely. Tulsi Gabbard framed that in the way to make it seem like Kamala was responsible for everything. Like she was Ronald Reagan. Like she was, uh, you know, <laughs> putting crack and cocaine into the streets. So, no, it, it wasn't that, you know, but it was that as prosecutor, did she act as a centrist to up her political career? Most definitely. Most definitely. And did she laugh at uh, the idea of legalizing uh, marijuana while her Republican opponent supported it? Yes, absolutely. These things are true. And so 
at the end of the day, like, uh, Kamala came back, uh, after the whole showdown, uh, between her and after the debates, really, and just, you know, basically called Tulsi Gabbard an, uh, an Assad apologist. And if you guys don't know what basically happened in that, uh, with, with Tulsi, as far as her being an Assad apologist, she was basically, I'm sure most of you guys know this by now, um, but she was basically, uh, basically condemned by like you know uh like on all levels like bipartisan by both parties because she met in a last minute meeting with Assad now she wasn't the only congress member to do so but since she's running for president uh you know of course they they're using that and uh but does that make her apologist no she's not an Assad apologist she has never praised Assad you know the thing about Tulsi is that Tulsi is just so wired and you know and you could see it from her uh, legislation that she's co-sponsored and drafted while she was in house that she's just so, you know, that foreign diplomacy is her best subject, like it's her best area. And I think it's her best area because not because she's been to all of these places, but it's because simply it's because she's an ex-Marine and she knows the cost of war. So, like, nobody can destroy her in foreign diplomacy. So, with the me and with Assad, I I mean, Tulsi has always said that, you know, before we'll go to war with a dictator, I will sit down and talk to them. And if anybody disagrees with that, then you're you're a warmonger by definition. definition. Um, But... Yeah, so Tulsi Gabbard is not an apologist. Honestly, to call Tulsi Gabbard an apologist is a Republican talking point. Uh, you know, and it's crazy to see all these Democratic tribalists use this Republican talking point to bash Tulsi Gabbard. But it just shows that, you know, some Democrats, most Democrats, are not as progressive as they lead on to be. But one of uh, my main frustrations with, you know, the Tulsi and Kamala showdown is that, you know, a lot of Kamala, uh, uh, I think they call themselves the K-Hive, you know, there's the Bernie bros, and there's the the K-Hive, and there's, uh, I don't know what Tulsi's fan base is called, um, Bernie bros, but, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, so they're called the K-Hive or whatever, whatever, whatever they're called, um, but Kamala Harris, like, Twitter, uh, supporters, um, basically was just, like, how can you keep how why are people trying to dunk on Kamala? This is the twit this is Kamala's fan base, by the way. They're saying this, they're saying this, they're saying that. How can people try to dunk on Kamala be you know, using some old ass shit? And I'm just like looking so confused and so puzzled. And so like when he came to this backlash, you know, this word is th- thrown around a lot when we're talking about critiquing you know, politicians in their past uh, mistakes uh, or their tenure uh, is this word or this phrase called historical context. And h- here's my problem with this. My, if, if I would be 100 with you, bro, like if I would be absolutely 100 with you, bro, I, if somebody did some, if somebody worked with segregationists 50 years ago to make sure that buses don't, buses are not desegregated and make sure that, you know, the South is still segregated, then 
I would want to know that, and not only I would know that, I would want to know that, but I would probably still condemn that action. And it's like, you know, people always talk about this rhetor. They they throw this historical context around, and basically, for people who don't know, historical context is the idea that you know. Uh, we can't really judge historical figures or historical people based on our moral platitude or our moral um, compass because it, it happened so long ago and, and, you know, that time wasn't as advanced socially or, uh, you know, in, in technology. This doesn't only apply socially, but this also applies in, like, science and technology. So it's basically, historical context is basically the concept that, look, we can't blame people back then for being behind, whether that's in, you know, social issues, whether that's in science, uh, whether that's in technology, whether that's in um, other advancements. It's basically a concept to where, like, we can't blame them for being left behind because that was basically the past, which is a simple concept. And and, and it's a concept that I agree with really across the board when we're talking about uh, technology, when we're talking about science, uh, when we're talking about medicine you know, holistic medicine versus, you know, immediate useful science. Like, when we talk about things like that, uh, I I do uh, agree fully with historical context. But when it comes to social issues, I kind of get iffy because I feel like it's often misplaced and it's also used as a dodger, as in to where, like, okay, I'm going to just throw historical context in here to say, like, hey, well, you know, it's okay he was a bad person or they were a bad person. And so when we use this socially... Oftentimes, people are like, oh, man, bruh, why are you bringing up this old shit? Why are you bringing up this old shit? And I always tell people, it's like, well, I'm bringing up this old shit because this old shit is the reason why we're here now, you know? So, Tulsi Gabbard, basically, she brought up Kamala's old shit because it's just funny that in this environment where we're talking about criminal justice reform and who has always had a progressive stake in criminal justice reform Kamala you're not <laughs> you're not the one to talk and so basically I want to go back uh you know to Kamala you know when people want to say that people her K-Hive or her supporters want to say that well you know it, it it's old stuff she doesn't believe like that anymore so just let it go well, I mean, I would let it go if Kamala Harris didn't use something from 50 years ago to dunk on Biden. And and that's what upsets me. And this is why <laughs> this is where people often see the concept of social historical context um or historical context in sociology is kind of uh uh thrown away because it's like, all right, so you're going to get mad at somebody for, you know, bringing up something that was from 2014, but we don't get mad at you for bringing up something that was 50 years ago. And again, I don't have a problem with, with, with what Kamala Harris did to Biden that first night in the, in the, in the debates. I actually, I'm actually glad Kamala's Har- Kamala Harris did that. Um, because Biden needs to conduct, be called out for his past, for his centrist past, for his down the middle past, for his past that is not progressive. And just like Biden needed to get called out, Kamala needed to get called out as well. And so Tosi did the same thing. And so I'm sure people could be like, 
you know, well, Jalen, the same thing you're saying about for Kamala and Joe, you can say for Tosi. Absolutely, you can say for Tosi. You know, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing when she went after Kamala. She knew because the thing about it is with Tosi, there's only two things you can knock her for, and not really two things, but one and a one in the possible. Because the first thing is her past uh, views on LGBTQ uh, people. Like that's okay. Well, that's understandable. If you wanna, you know, you know, nitpick and say, well, you know, I don't know if I trust her as a as um as a progressive because it took her so long to be for uh, gay marriage. I mean, you'll you'll literally have to like pull premises out your ass to defend this one because it was literally, you know, in two thousand five. But we can use that. We can use that. And and the thing is, Tulsi knew the attacks she would get you know, from exposing Kamala. So she she understands. She just knew what what had to be done. Uh, I, I personally feel like Tosi should have also went harder at Joe Biden since, and shown that, okay, not only I'm better than Kamala, but I'm the true progressive that's in this building right now. I'm the only progressive that's in this building right now. And that's what she really should have done. Um, but... I mean, big ups to Tulsi, big ups to Kamala. I mean, uh, to me personally, I would vote for Kamala and Tulsi over Biden any day. I mean, really, I'll vote for Tulsi over both of them any day. But, yeah. Uh, but that's just how stuff goes. I mean, we'll see when this next debate comes. Hopefully, you know, Tulsi gets back in it so we could you know, see her and um, Kamala uh, catfight again. And as a leftist, I'm going to get in in big trouble for saying the term catfight when describing two women argue. But, yeah. Um, Before we get into the last part of uh, today's episode, I really wanted to have a quick honorable mentions for the two most rememberable but forgettable candidates out of this election cycle so far. Um, my first one definitely has to be for John Delaney. He is a, a, a definite nutcase, and uh, here is why. I mean, I never met somebody who is just so wrong and just just was just in their wrongness, right? They, would, they just love being wrong. But then again, it, it, I, I wouldn't say that because he kind of reminds me of like that, you know, ditzy person that was kind of in your class who is so ditzy because you could tell they were so dumb and they didn't understand how anything worked. It's like John Delaney on a day-to-day basis gets dunked on by Twitter users when it comes to Medicare for All. But he's going to be remembered just for his braveness and and his willingness to stand up. For who exactly? I don't know. Cause he's the wealthy. He was the wealthiest man on the stage. Uh, actually, out of all the candidates. So I don't know who he's really fighting for. But thank you for standing up for the pharmaceutical companies that back you and that are in your pocket. Uh, but uh, the second honorable mention has to actually be a real honorable mention, which is Marianne Williamson. Man, I don't know what happened with Marianne Williamson. I think Marianne Williamson, like opened a book of pedagogy of the oppressed and opened a book 
from uh, Noam Chomsky and was like, and then opened up one of her books and was like, oh, okay, I got it. I'm ready for these debates. Man, because, like, to be honest, bro, she really totally stepped her game up from the first debates. I mean, she started talking about reparations on this small argument that was really solid through and through. Like, I'm I, I'm not really going to go into what she says because I don't want to kind of, I don't have the excerpt with me in front of my face, so I don't want to mischaracterize or, you know, miss, uh, say what she said, but basically she was just on it, man. She was, you know, talking about, you know, why, you know, reparations is something that, you know, it's owed more than just, you know, something instead of a practical matter of like, if it's feasible or not, like, no, it's something that's owed. And so, yeah, like, you know, and she even, you know, changed her opinion for Medicare for all that night. So it was like, um, I mean, still a wacko job, but Marianne Williamson, you know, after being on the Dave Rubin show, because she went on there, I kind of seen that like, yeah, she's a bit wacky, but she can be an issues candidate. She can definitely be an issues candidate, definitely when it comes to mental health reform, uh, African-American reparations, uh, those two things mainly, uh, she can definitely become an issues candidate. And that these things is like, because like, reparations is already on the table. Uh, but like with mental health, real, like comprehensive mental health reform, that's just, these are just stuff that are going to get added to the progressive agenda, thanks to people like her. So that was real cool. Um, but like I said, um, Marianne Williamson originally didn't believe in Medicare for All. And I'm going to kind of use this as a transition to uh, talk about um, healthcare one more time. Uh, but she said that night, you know, when she heard Bernie and Warren talk that, you know, she, they convinced her, like, oh, wow, we do need Medicare for all. And they, they convinced her, one, because Warren and Bernie know how to make the argument for healthcare. And earlier I made the economic argument. So what I want to do real quickly, real, real quickly, is just not uh, immerse ourselves into the moral argument of Medicare for all, but just question it. Um, and, and question what exactly? Question this idea of choice. When you hear people like John Hickenlooper, people like John Delaney, um, people like Inslee, people like Buttigieg even are, uh, well, not Buttigieg, but O'Rourke, yeah, better O'Rourke, because he's the one who wants that Medicare extra plan or whatever. Um, but when you hear people like that, and uh, it's Steve Bullock, uh, Joe Biden, when you hear people like them talk, you know, they talk about, they always go back to this moral argument to people have the choice of their own insurance. And ever since 2017, like when I actually read the bill, I, I, I never understand what people No, I understand what people mean by it. But I don't think people understand what they mean by it. In the Medicare for all bill. You will keep your same doctor. Period. The only difference is, is that more benefits will be added And you won't have to pay astronomically for this great doctor. 
Now, this is only if you have a great plan, because like I said earlier, a lot of people don't have grade A plans. But if you have a grade A plan, this is what's happening. So it's like your, your choice, your idea of choice, where does it come from now? Since you still get to be at your own hospital, you still get to go to your own doctor. Because John, John Delaney's statement that hospitals will close down has been proven to be false by multiple fact-checking sources, including PolitiFact and Snopes. So when you understand that like your only choice comes from this, these things right here, your choice and benefits, that's the only thing you choose with private health insurance. So when people talk about this, this, this meaning of choice, as in American people should have the choice to choose their insurance, you are automatically strawmanning Medicare for all. And not, and not only strawmanning, uh, because you're making a statement that isn't valid and, you're, and, and then you're debating against that statement. But you you take Medicare for all and then say that it's stripping the American person of civil liberty because they don't have the right to choose. Okay, but you know you realize you get your say you keep you can keep your same doctor in your same hospital. So what are you talking about choosing? Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about benefits. Because under a Medicare for all system, the only thing you can't choose is your benefits because everyone, everyone gets the same one. Everyone gets priority benefits, priority-based benefits. I see with this buy-in system we have now, you get to choose your benefits. So what you're going to say, uh, all right, for benefits... You can give me heart disease, like heart problems. Uh, yeah, give me heart problems. Now, pre-condition, pre, uh, pre-existing conditions, though. Like, if I come here and I already have a disease, I don't want that uh, because I don't want to get that taken care of because I feel like it's a pre-existing uh, condition. So, fuck it. Uh, and if it has anything to do with my leg, though, maybe if it's my legs, I want I want you guys to have benefits for my legs. But like, if it's like for my right arm, like. Y'all can keep it. Like, if, if I got to get my right arm amputated, uh, I don't want that benefit. This is literally how stupid the argument of choice sounds. Literally. When you understand what Medicare for all truly is. And so, it, it, it kind of brings me to my next point of this Republican talking point Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren was talking about. In the debate, the first uh, nights of the debate, uh, Sanders came out and told Jake Tapper straight up, you guys are presenting, when asked this very question, he told them, like, you guys are presenting Republican talking points. The idea of choosing between a, uh, your, your private health insurance and public, that, 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 that's all a Republican talking point. How I know that? Because Democrats overwhelmingly support Medicare for All at 77% according to the Washington, uh, Washington and ABC poll. 
Washington Post and ABC poll. 77% of Democrats. Because you know why? Because 77% of Democrats understand that, like, look, um, anything will be... Our, any Medicare for all system, this Medicare for all system will be better than anything I have right now. Because I will be placed on a priority based on the care that I need, not how much money I could put in for my care. And so why is it bad for them to use these Republican talking points? Because they, you see their agenda. You see the CNN's agenda now. It's to try to win back Republican voters with this fake Obama centrism and pray to God that that's going to win the Rust Belt. When we literally tried to do that in 2016 and got nowhere. How are we going to pay for Medicare for what? 77% of Democrats. And Democrats are the ones talking about we shouldn't have the we shouldn't have to do these radical plans. Democrats. I mean, hey. And it kind of leads me to my last point. My 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 mo the most talked about thing in this election that really shouldn't be talked about, but it's because I say that because it's talked about in such an ill way, and it's this term of electability. Now I agree that we need to have an electable candidate that's going against Trump. And I feel like everybody else agrees that way. We can't have a candidate that's that can't be drunk. We can't. And saying that, what becomes a sort of obtense in a way is the centrist Democrat idea that in order to do that, we have to cut down the middle and appease to both sides. When literally statistics are saying no. When the culture left is saying no, we don't want that. Well, then how do you win the Rust Belt? Well, I don't know. Maybe um, after the campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, ABC poll came out and said that uh, those same Rust Belt districts that Trump won, Bernie would have beat him over. Or, or, or maybe the polls that... The plethora of polls that have Bernie Sanders ahead of Donald Trump in the Rust Belt areas this year. What I'm basically saying is, is that for some reason the Democratic Party thinks that how we're going to get people to vote Democrat is to get them to vote Republican light. To get them vote for to get them to vote for Bill Clinton. That's how we're gonna win. When the Republicans absolutely hate Bill Clinton, 
You feel like we need another Obama when Republicans absolutely hate Obama. You feel like we need a centrist that meets down the middle. Like when Hillary was a centrist and Republicans absolutely hate centrists. Am I saying that we should coddle to Republicans' opinions? No. But the thing is, if, if you feel like that's what we should do, you're still logically going about it the wrong way. Logically. Because what Pete Buttigieg said was so true. When you're dealing with that regressive mindset that's not thinking about progress at all, you're going to always be known as this radical to them. So stop trying to appease to them. Stop. Just stop it. It's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. We need to, Our electability has to be focused around a social, progressive, democratic candidate who wants money out of politics, who wants to lift the prohibition of marijuana, who wants to guarantee free access to health care for every individual as a right, who believes in the standard minimum wage, who believes in the standard living of minimum wage, I mean. A minimum wage that is, is not 725 federally. A minimum wage that actually helps people with upward mobility. Now, oh, what, what, wait. How do you help people with over, over mobility? Not just wages, but securing opportunity. And what's the best way to secure opportunity? Oh, how about this? Forgive student loan debt and make community and public college free. Oh, that's what Bernie Sanders wants to do. That's 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 crazy. The left populist message has shown in theory to resonate with more people than a moderate centrist approach. But I see what's the fault in people's deductions. The fault comes from people who think that, uh, well, the likely voters are the only people we have to pay attention to. And by that merit, yeah, you're right. If, if we're talking about likely voters, then probably we should meet in the middle. If we don't, if we don't want to have any new voters, if we don't want people excited about the political process, we probably should meet in the middle and just leave everything up to the technocrats and the people who are already in office and stuff. But if we want an actual revolution to where like people started voting again, if you wanted Jaquavin to start voting again, well, Jaquavin needs environmental justice. Jaquavin needs a better job. Jaquavin needs opportunity. Same thing for Emily. Emily, who's the white single mom, working class single mom, who has to worry about out-of-pocket expenses, and so her her disposable income is steadily dropping, and she can't even focus on the growth of herself. Left populism, if you want to appeal to more people, left populism is the way. Ranked choice voting. But this was a long episode because you, you, you guys know I have to get down and gritty when talking about these debates. But um, 
tell me how you enjoyed it. Um, if you have a different opinion from me, uh, don't feel uh, what's the word? Don't feel uh intimidated. Um, I want to hear your opinions. If you like Joe Biden, show me. Tell me why to like Joe Biden. You know, tell me why he'll still be he'll still be a good candidate and he'll still be a better candidate than Donald Trump. Um, tell me why. Um, and you know, just let me know how you feel about the process. Are you excited about the process? Uh, what I'm mostly, I even want to hear people from people who are not excited about the pro- the current process, people who are really disgusted with the current political system. Tell me what you guys think. Um, follow us at E2 The Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, that's E2 The Podcast at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, uh, shout outs to Shades of Blue Podcast, man. They're going strong. They're doing some really great stuff. Um, we're going to have some really good material for you guys uh, here shortly. Um, and if that be all, that'll be all. Peace out, you guys. And please, and please remember to get your sleep and read at least once a day. Get your sleep and, and read at least once a day. All right. Thank you, guys.